Well, as we've mentioned before, this is Reformation Sunday. Um, my habit has been to, uh, to make the sermon on this last Sunday of October to be connected in some sense uh, with the Reformation. Um, this is Reformation Sunday because it's in remembrance of what happened on October 31st, 1517. That's when Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk, a university professor, he nailed his 95 points of discussion on the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And Luther was only looking for an opportunity to have an open discussion about some things that he was concerned about within, uh, within his Catholic faith, within the Catholic church. Instead, his 95 theses were taken, were printed on the newly invented Gutenberg Press and distributed widely before any discussion could ever be had. It caused a great upheaval and is widely considered the immediate catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. So we're going to take some time to talk about that Reformation this morning. And since we just finished working our way through 1 Timothy 2, I'm going to use that chapter as something of a guide for us. 1 Timothy 2 actually speaks of prayer. It speaks of civil government. It speaks of godliness speaks of the roles of men and women in the church. But in the middle of all that, we are reminded of Paul's main concern, which is the gospel. So let me go ahead and read the first seven verses of chapter 2. First is the call to prayer. First off, then I urge you that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. As a teacher of the Gentiles or of the nations in faith and truth. So our first main point is this. The Reformation strongly emphasized that Jesus Christ is the one mediator, the one mediator between God and man. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We all need a Savior. That's because we are all guilty of sin, every one of us. And because we have sinned against God, we are under his condemnation and deserve his wrath. That's why we have to have a mediator. There is no way that we could make up for our sins in any way by doing good things. Uh, there is no way we could earn a salvation by works that we do. So there has to be a mediator between God and man. In order to be a mediator between God and man, the mediator has to be fully God. The mediator also has to be fully man. Mediator also has to be perfectly righteous. There is no one who could be a mediator like that except Jesus Christ. Nobody. As the perfect mediator, these verses also tell us that he gave himself as a ransom, a payment for sinners. And it's his death on the cross and it's his victorious resurrection that accomplishes salvation for all who will trust in him for salvation. 
So that truth really is at the core of 1 Timothy 2. It's really at the core of 1 Timothy. But it's also at the core of the Reformation. That's why the Reformers, for example, rejected the idea of Mary being a mediator. There's only one mediator. That's why the Reformers rejected the transubstantiation that would be taught that was taught in the Mass and observing the Mass. That's the view that the bread and the wine is literally transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. This view gives the impression that Christ dies all over again in the Mass, but actually we know that Christ died once for all. Um, the Reformers also spoke much of justification by faith alone. The believers forgiven, made righteous before God by faith alone in Christ. No one can add to that righteousness by their works. So, and, and, and that ties into also to the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory says that really none of us really make it or good enough to really fully earn salvation so that we spend years in purgatory to purge away the sin that we accumulated over the years. And so, but, this, but that says no, we say no, Jesus Christ completely paid for that salvation. There's no need for any further uh, work or purging even on, our, on the part of anybody who's a true believer. Well, these are some of the key issues of the Reformation. It's my belief that the recovery of these foundational gospel issues resulted in the greatest revival in the history of the world. The gospel began to spread all over Europe, from Germany, Switzerland, Spain, France, Italy, the Netherlands, England, Scotland, and ultimately to the United States. Thousands, even millions of people heard and responded to the gospel. But it was also a very dangerous times. Multiplied thousands and thousands of people were put to death over these issues. At this time, the religious belief of a particular country, or there were many city-states also, but the particular belief of that country was tied directly into the government and the laws of that nation. So they were together. In other words, there was no such thing as separation of church and state. It was one. Everything was connected. And both the Catholic Church and the Reformers saw it this way. So to preach the message of the Reformation in a Catholic state was illegal, could get you arrested, even executed for treason. And the opposite is if you were preaching Catholicism in a Reformed state. So this time of great revival was also a time of great danger and great suffering. Significant men that we think of, of who led the way in the Reformation, we've already sang Martin Luther's hymn, Ulrich Zwingli was another, John Calvin, John Knox, Martin Bucer, many others. There were also many great women. And this year I want to focus on several women, five exactly, uh, who not only were great reformers, but also exemplified the exhortations that we find in 1 Timothy 2. <clears throat> so our second main point this morning is this. There were multiple women during the Reformation years who served as magistrates, courageously doing all they could to give believers the freedom to live in all godliness. The most common form of government in the 16th century was tied to those who were born or married into the royal family of whatever that 
of that particular region or jurisdiction. So as a result, there would be many queens, uh, princesses, duchesses, who would find themselves in key positions of government because of their family lineage. So I want to mention two of these women who used their positions of influence to help the Protestant reformers. Before we get that, look again at verses 1 and 2 there from 1 Timothy 2. He urges entreaties, prayers, petitions made on behalf of all men, then specifically here for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So Paul exhorted the believers to pray for all who were in authority so that they could lead that tranquil, that quiet, peaceful life in all godliness. In other words, that godliness would be able to, would, they would be free to practice godliness in every aspect of their life. Well, much of the Reformation was a time of great upheaval in many places. To stand up for a reformer, like I said, in a Catholic country could be very dangerous. I'm certain, though, that there were believers who were praying this prayer from 1 Timothy 2. And one of the people that God raised up as an answer to that prayer was the first one on your list, Marguerite de Navarre. She was the first princess to embrace the Reformed faith. Really, if it had not been for her, the French church would have been crushed before it was ever formed. She was born in 1492. Her brother was Francois who was in line to be the next king of France. She was well-educated. This was a smart lady. She was fluent in French, Spanish, English, Hebrew, and Latin, and had Italian and German in there as well. Had a good understanding of philosophy, history, literature, and theology. When she was 17, in 1509, she married Charles, who was the duke. It was a political marriage, which most of them were. And it was at some point in the years after this that she heard evangelical preaching and she put her faith in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. When her brother, Francois, became the king of France, his wife was chronically ill. So Marguerite often functioned as the queen of France. Some began to complain of her Protestant beliefs, but her brother always defended her. He said this about her, My sister Marguerite is the only woman I ever knew who had every virtue and every grace without any admixture of vice. So as a result, even though she was in a Roman Catholic court, she was given the freedom to speak of Christ and to use her influence. But Francois, her brother, began to see the Protestants as being dangerous. He put one of her friends in prison. After several days, Marguerite arranged for his cell door to be opened, and he was able to escape. She did this kind of thing on a regular basis. Next, there was a Protestant poet who was arrested. She was able to get him free. A couple years later, he was arrested again, and it seemed for sure at this time he was going to be burned at the stake. Once again, she was able to get him freed. But when he was arrested a third time, she was not able to be successful, and she was heartbroken that he was burned at the stake. She did her best to bring in evangelical preachers like Jacques Lefebvre and uh, Philip Melanchthon to spread the gospel in France, but their opportunities were very limited. 
Later, in a battle with Spain, her husband was killed. She then married the king of Navarre. Navarre was a kingdom that bordered France and Spain. There was no Reformation influence at all, so that she began to have private evangelical services, hoping this would spread. Her new husband actually struck her out of anger at her beliefs. She told her brother about it. Her brother was furious. And so he started to come to Navarre and threatened war over this. So the king of Navarre begged his wife to forgive him, and war was averted. And actually, he even began to allow some reformed worship, you know, as well. But her brother, Francois, was going the other direction in France. He banned all Protestant books and would not allow his sister's friends uh, to come to France any longer. In 1528, her daughter, Jeanne, was born. Her brother took her away and brought her to France to be educated as a French Roman Catholic princess. And soon afterward, Marguerite became Protestantism's first published female author. She released a volume of religious poems. Here's, there's a line in your, uh, on your sermon outline from one of her poems. It says this, Encased in lambskin is the sacred word, embossed with markings of a deep blood red, sealed with seven seals may now be heard by those who find that law and grace are wed. There's a real centrality of Christ there, and you can also see a real centrality of the scriptures. A love for the scriptures is showing through here. And as you know, that was another key tenet of the Reformation, sola scriptura. She highly valued the word of God. Well, her brother became more hostile to the Reformers. The Reformers in France were especially known as the Huguenots. He began to order their executions. So Marguerite made Navarre a safe haven from Protestants fleeing France. She often invited them to the palace to discuss scriptures. In 1547, her brother, the king of France, died. That same year, she published a lengthy poem, and I love this title, The Triumph of the Lamb. It focused on the person and work of Christ, spoke of him as the reigning Christ. She had such great hope of seeing the Reformation spread, tied into the triumph of the Lamb. It turned out that her daughter would do much for the Reformation, and she had a grandson who would become king of France and provide freedom of worship during his reign. The next woman of the Reformation we're going to talk about is Jeanne de Aubret. Now, I'm not French, so I'm butchering these names. Some of you guys actually know France, and you can correct me later. But Jeanne was Marguerite de Navarre's only surviving child. And Marguerite knew her, mother, her daughter's personality. So when she was on her deathbed, she spoke to her daughter about the work that she might do for the church. And she actually became a great military defender of the Protestants. Now, if you remember, Francois took Jeanne away from her mother to make sure she was raised in the Catholic faith. When she was 12 years old, he arranged a political marriage for her, which she absolutely refused. Um, she was a very headstrong little girl, you can tell. And, you know, if you're 12 years old, you should refuse. She actually filed two official protests with the Pope to stop this wedding. 
It didn't work. She was forced to go to the wedding ceremony. They actually had to carry her down the aisle to the altar to get married. Four years later, the Pope did annul her marriage based on the protest that she had made, the, that she had made earlier. Well, she did marry a man, and this time she agreed to this marriage. And apparently he was marrying her so that he could become king of Navarre. They had five children. One of them, named Henri, will come to play later. There was a threat, a threat from the French king, one of the French kings at that time, wanting to annex Navarre into France. Jeanne actually raised an army to prepare for war, but the threat was avoided. In the meantime, under her mother's influence, Jeanne was becoming more and more convinced of the, or the Reformed faith. So when she was 32 years old, she made an open profession of her faith at the capital. Three years later, she was intent on making the Reformed faith the official faith of Navarre. She'd been planning this for several years. Here's what she wrote to a friend about it. This is on your outline. A reform seems so right and necessary that for my part, I consider that it would be disloyal and cowardice to God, to my conscience, and to my people to remain any longer in a state of suspense and indecision. Well, she got letters of censure from the Pope about this. She got letters of encouragement from John Calvin from Geneva. And there were plots made against her. She also helped Theodore Beza establish a Protestant church in Navarre. And the church had a great impact. Matter of fact, even many from France were converted through this church in Navarre. Well, this led to the French increasing their persecution of the French Huguenot people. Prisoners were hanged. Property was confiscated. Jeanne was personally threatened. By this time, her husband had turned against her as well, so she was forced to leave. But soon after that, her husband was killed. She then had total power in Navarre. She was the queen. So she solidified the reforms that she had uh, put, into practice, put into play earlier, and plots again were made against her. One of the plot was to capture her and to turn her over to the Spanish Inquisition. She escaped. She made a plot of her own. That was to get her son, Henri, back to Navarre. She was successful at that. She made sure he was trained in the faith, and Henri had a real knack for war as well. So he was trained in that as well. There was a great war between the Huguenots and the Catholics in 1568 till about 1572. And she and Henri actually are the ones who helped the Huguenots because they knew if the Huguenots lost, the kingdom of Navarre, since it bordered France, would not be able to stand. So she was a great inspiration to the Huguenot army in person, uh, and they were able to hold off the Catholics and force a treaty to be made. But the treaty was a trap. It was a trap that would end up resulting in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. On that, the Saint Par and, and that massacre, uh, which began on St. Bartholomew's Day, 3,000 Huguenots were slaughtered just in the streets. Another 8,000 or so were killed in other provinces. It was one of the, really one of the darkest times of the Reformation. Jeanne was spared from seeing this happen. She died about two months before it took place.
one of the quotes she made was this, although I'm just a little princess, God has given me the government of this country so that I may rule it according to his gospel and teach his laws. I rely rely on God. So see, God certainly did use her in some amazing ways in a really hard circumstance. And I have no doubt she was part of the answer to the prayers of believers who were praying for their rulers so they could live in godliness. Now there were also amazing Reformation women who stood out in other ways as they lived to honor the Lord. So our third main point is this. There were multiple women during the Reformation years who were homemakers and remarkable examples of God-honoring good works. In 1 Timothy 2.15, Paul highlights the great honor and privilege that's been given to women of bearing children and, and establishing a home. In verse 10, Paul also exhorts women toward good and God-honoring works. Well, the three women I want to mention this morning truly abounded in good works in so many ways. First, I want to introduce to you is this, Anna Reinhard Zwingli. So now we move to Switzerland. A young man from one of the most prominent families in Zurich wanted to marry Anna. She was just a commoner. Her husband was from a prominent family. He married her anyway, even though his father forbid him to, and he ended up being disinherited as a result of this. Uh, Her husband becomes an ensign in the Swiss Army in order to support the family. He was a part of several different crusades, several different campaigns, not crusades, campaigns. End up in broken health and died. So now Anna is a widow. A few years later in Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli came and was the minister of the church there. He began preaching through the book of Matthew in 1518. This was never, ever done. No one preached through books of the Bible. He just began to do verse by verse, preaching through Matthew, which, like I said, was unheard of. But Zwingli had come to understand the Christian faith, very similar and almost at the same time as Martin Luther. And so he understood the importance of the scriptures. From the beginning, Anna was one of the most attentive listeners. Zwingli also was impressed with her son, Gerald, and began to teach him Greek, began to teach him Latin and provide other opportunities for him to, uh, to be educated, and uh, not just in education in general, but education in the faith. But as he grew older, he fell away from the faith. Well, in 1523, Zwingli actually wrote a book directed specifically to him. And it was called this, Directions for the Education of a Young Nobleman. It was dedicated to Gerald at the book, and, and, and God used that to actually bring him back to the Lord. And it was Zwingli's great care for him that opened the way for marriage to his mother. Their common concern for Gerald actually brought them together. But there was a big problem. Priests were not allowed to marry. There was a concern on what kind of effect this would have on his ministry. So they married secretly in 1523. It was a year or so before it actually became known that they were actually married. This was huge. Zwingli was the first of the reformers to get married. He was charged with breaking his vows as a priest, but Anna proved to be a true helpmeet for him. 
She gave care to the poor in the city. She visited the sick. She actually bore four children, raised them as her mother. She hosted many people in her home. In fact, there were many Protestant refugees who fled from their dangerous situations and came to Zurich. One of the things that Zwingli and the other Zurich ministers worked on was translating the Bible into Swiss so that people could read it for themselves. This was happening all over Europe, where the Bible was being translated into the language of the people that had been forbidden by the Catholics, that they couldn't, the people were not to be able to read the Bible in their own language. But that was one of the big parts of the Reformation, is the Bible began to be purposely translated into the language of the people. Well, Zwingli and others were doing that as far as the Swiss language. The project began in 1525. Every night, Anna would look over the proofs that they were working on. That's what she would read before she went to bed, is the proofs of the translation of the Bible into Swiss. Then we read this. When the complete Bible was published in 1529, four years later, Zwingli gave her a copy. It became her favorite book. She tried to make sure that every family in the congregation had a copy at home. This is one of the things that we see in all the women that we're looking at this morning. They loved the scriptures. The opportunities they had, they took advantage of them, whether it was reading, studying, hearing it taught. And the privilege of having a copy of the scriptures in their own language, which is something that they treasured. And also tried to get her husband, Zwingli, to take better care of himself. He was under constant danger of being assassinated or being kidnapped. She was careful of the food that he ate, afraid that he was being poisoned. She made sure that there was always someone with him when he had to go out at night. One night in 1525, their house was stoned. Um, Zwingli took his sword. If you ever see pictures of Zwingli, oftentimes it's a picture of him with his sword. <laughs> he took his sword. He went outside and told him if they had business with him, come back the next day, but leave his family alone. In 1531, the Roman Catholic army came to Zurich. Well, the Protestants raised a kind of a makeshift army of their own. Zwingli went as their captain, and his son Gerald went along as well. He was very concerned, emotional, before the battle took place. And the next day, her worst fears became reality. Both her husband and her son were killed in what was to, become, what was to be a great defeat for the Protestant army. Anna's grief was just extreme, really. She went to the Lord with her sorrow. Prominent citizens, ministers, wrote letters of comfort. It was Henry Bullinger, who we'll talk about even more later, and his wife who took Anna and her children into their home. And Anna's grief was so deep that she's been called the Reformation's weeping mother, recognizing all the pain that she endured. Well, Bollinger became Zwingli's successor at the church. He and his wife continued to care for Anna and their family. Her children grew up to be strong believers, continued with the example of, of, of encouraging the church through works of kindness. The next woman of the Reformation we're going to look at is this, Anna Adlischweiler Bollinger. Anna's father died when she was eight years old, and because times were hard, her mother gave her over to a convent in Zurich, so she became a nun. When Anna's mother became very sick, 
she moved in with her daughter and was cared for there at the, uh, at the convent. Well, it was during this time that Zwingli came to Zurich as the priest and began preaching. The Zurich City Council decided they wanted the nuns to hear this message as well. So they sent Zwingli and those who were uh, kind of working with him to take turn time to go and, and preach in the convent in 1522. Caused a lot of controversy. There were people who believed. There were people who would not believe. And ultimately, those who believed and agreed with Zwingli left the convent. But those who didn't believe, they left too because they wanted to find a convent that would be more conducive to their Catholic faith. The only people that were left were Anna and her mother. She stayed because her mother was sick. But Anna had believed in these messages, and so she was a believer. One day, young Henry Bullinger came to the convent. He was one of the young men working with Zwingli. He quickly fell in love with Anna, proposed to her by letter. We still have a copy of that. It's the oldest written love letter that we have by a reformer. Well, Anna's terminally ill mother opposed the marriage. So she postponed the wedding and continued to care for her mother in the convent until her death. They then were married in 1529. And Henry accepted a pastorate in Bremgarten, also in Switzerland. Well, that defeat of Zurich in the battle where Zwingli was killed made life and ministry difficult for many ministers, including Henry Bollinger. One night he was forced to flee, and soon after he left, the Catholic soldiers entered the town, they plundered his house, they quartered 30 soldiers in his home with Anna and her two daughters, two little girls. Anna decided she needed to flee too. Her girls were six months and 18 months. When she, <laughs> this is an interesting story here. When she came to the gate of the town, it was closed. The guard refused to open it. The story goes that she tackled the guard. She wrestled the keys away from him. She got the door open, and they were able to run out and end up joining her husband in Zurich. <laughs> Bullinger ended up being asked to preach at the chapel there in Zurich, and the church ultimately called him and asked him to stay as their minister. Well, he and Anna's life became even busier. They end up having 11 children. As we mentioned earlier, they took in Anna Zwingli and her children when her husband was killed. There were often interns that were staying in their home as well who were training in the ministry. It wasn't uncommon to have 20 people or so in the house at the same time. And her husband didn't make much money, so things were tight. Their home was also open to refugees from all over Europe. This was happening all over Europe. There were people from Italy who would come. There were people from Locarno, which was on the southern border of Switzerland, people who would come from England. They even started a school to educate the English students as ministers. And when Elizabeth became queen of England after her cousin, Bloody Mary, died, when England became queen of England, she actually sent an ornamental goblet expressing her thanks for all the help of these, uh, training these young men that oftentimes were able, they were able to use as ministers in England. Rebecca 
Van Dudward said this about Anna. says, her house was a home to the homeless as Protestant refugees from all over Europe came to stay. Zurich was an asylum to the persecuted Reformed believers of other countries. Anna actually became known as the Zurich mother to the Reformers. And her work allowed many young men to be able to prepare for ministry as they served along as, she, as they served along with her husband in the church. One of Henry Bollinger's best books, best known books, was called Christian Matrimony. And it reflects on he and Anna's marriage. For centuries, that book, for centuries, that book was the best-selling book on marriage and home life. Now, there's one more woman of the Reformation that I want to introduce to you. Katharina Schutzzell. She was born in Strasbourg, Germany. She was given a good education, showed real religious zeal. She even took vows of chastity, but she always struggled with assurance of salvation. She felt like she just never did enough. But in her late teens, things began to change. She began to read some of the early writings of the Reformers. And then in 1518, Matthew Zell arrived and began preaching in the great cathedral in Strasbourg, where she lived. There was a problem, though. The Catholic archbishop would not allow Zell to use the pulpit. It was locked. Couldn't get into it. So his friends made a wooden pulpit that they would carry into the cathedral for him to use to preach from, and people crowded in to hear him preach. He spoke again much of Jesus Christ as the one mediator between man and God. He spoke much of the ransom that he gave when he sacrificed his life, a ransom that purchased the salvation of sinners who put their faith in Christ. And Katerina was one of those who believed, who obtained a true assurance of her salvation now. Well, she and Matthew were married in 1525. Once again, this was a problem because he was a priest, but the people of Strasbourg filled the cathedral at their wedding to show their approval of this. Katerina gave a lot of time to studying the scriptures and to studying the writers of the reformers. She had a great desire to spread the gospel as she began writing books and tracts of many sorts. One of her better known works was a defense from the scripture that made it clear that priests and pastors had the right to marry. She also kept up a prolific writing correspondence with reformers like Luther and Zwingli. And like the others that we've seen, she too was in the position of trying to take care of the many refugees who were fleeing their countries because of their faith. One time in particular, at one point, 150 at once showed up in Strasbourg. Somehow the Zales were able to welcome 80 of them in their home, temporarily, but 80 of them in their home, and she was able to feed 50 to 60 of them for, 40, for, for another four weeks. And what she also did was she wrote letters to all of their wives to encourage them to stand firm in the faith. She exhorted them to be joyful and, and, and to continue in their faith. During the Peasants' War, which was 1525, there were 3,000 more refugees who poured into Strasbourg. Again, Katerina did all she could to help and recruited others as well. She was also a regular visitor at the prisons. In 1529, there was a debate between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. 
they had some differing opinions on the Lord's Supper, and it was becoming an issue. Everything else they basically agreed on, but they had some real differences on the Lord's Supper. So at Marburg, there was a, this was switched from, there, there, there was a, uh, a meeting, Swingley and, uh, and Luther and others along with them to try to talk this out. Well, Katarina was the one who hosted all the pastors and took care of them, you know, uh, as in, their, in her home. She was very disappointed in the outcome of the meeting because could not, they could not agree. And she actually wrote to Martin Luther about his attitude, basically admonished him for his attitude in the whole matter. She had more of a desire for true freedom of worship than others, it seems. She encouraged sympathetic attitudes toward the Anabaptist and others who were not exactly in line with the main reformers. She said, leave them alone, preach Christ, don't persecute. Leave them alone, just preach Christ. In a time of plague in 1541, she was a nurse to many, including her husband. He survived, but seven years later, 1548, he died. The city magistrates allowed Katarina to stay in the cathedral parsonage, which kept her out of poverty. The newer leadership in the church there in Strasbourg had some differing ideas from those of her husband and some of the other reformers. And Katarina wrote to them on a number of theological and political issues. Here's something that she wrote. She said, You young fellows tread on the graves of the first fathers of this church in Strasbourg and punish all who disagree with you. And here's an important line. But faith cannot be forced. Faith cannot be forced. So again, she was rebuking them. She had insight that many others did not have at the time. She later published commentaries on Psalm 51, commentary on Psalm 130, commentary on the Lord's Prayer. She wrote many religious tracts and actually oversaw the publication of a book of German hymns. Here's what she had to say about that. This, this was part of the introduction, introductory page of that book of hymns that's on your outline. <coughs> God is glad when the craftsman at his bench, the maid at the sink, the farmer at the plow, the dresser at the vines, and the mother at the cradle break forth in hymns of prayer, praise, and instruction. So she clearly understood the significance of believers singing of the salvation that the Lord had given them. Well, as a widow, Katerina continued to offer refuge to persecuted Protestants from all dominations for years. A reformer, one of the well-known reformers, Martin Bucer, gave her money to enable her to do this. And she continued her ministry of hospitality, encouraging others through letters until she died at the age of 64. And so for all her ministry, she was known as the mother reformer. In anticipation of death, she wrote these words to a friend. I have lived so that I am not ashamed to continue to live among the faithful, but I do not fear to die. For I am certain that in Christ I will live again, and that in him I have a gracious God forever. So many things that these women had in common. One is they all suffered a lot. They all had significant trials beyond what we can even probably imagine that they had to deal with. But they all pressed on. All of their situations were different, 
some were like in, like I said, in a, a magist, uh, like civil magistrate type roles. Uh, others were wives, widows, uh, just people helping in the church. Very different kind of circumstances, and they would change as the seasons of their life would change. They had different gifts. The last one we looked at, Katarina Zell, had a real gift, obviously, of writing and putting things in words in that way. Some of the others didn't do it that way. They had different gifts and used them in so many different ways. But they all had in common with the fact that they knew Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their one mediator, and their good works served, multiplied thousands of people and gave so much evidence of the fact that Jesus Christ Christ was their Savior and Lord. Lord, I want to thank you for these women that have been dead, most of them almost 500 years now. But Lord, I thank you that we still know some things about them. We still know of their testimonies and the areas where they struggled and areas where they had real challenges. But I just want to thank you for examples of women who continued in the faith, even when it was hard, who took stands for things that were not popular, and they were willing to endure whatever came their way as far as suffering and encouraged others to do the same. I just thank you for that kind of example. I think that there are so many men and women in the history of the church that we can look to and be encouraged by, by, by their example. So, Lord, thank you for that. And again, I thank you that we have the same faith that they had. We have one mediator, and that is Jesus Christ. We all have sin, but we know that we have a Savior in Christ. And so we thank you so much. And we thank you for your word. Another thing that all these women had in common was that they loved the scriptures. Lord, help us to continue to grow in our love for the scriptures as well. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm a sinner. I know that I don't measure up at all. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came to give his life a ransom to be the mediator that I need. And I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off or those watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.